Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue on uh, looking at this amazing passage. Ephesians chapter 4, and this evening we're looking at verses 20 through 24. And now the title is Good Roots, Good Fruits. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to 24, if you're taking notes, the title is Good Roots, Good Fruits, and this is God's Word. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Let's pray one more time as we open up God's Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, I can't thank you enough for this congregation, for this ministry. Lord, it's such a joy to be with like-minded saints who love you and worship you. Father, we thank you for your Spirit's work in us to teach us your word and to convince us, Lord, of its truth. We know that when we read your word, they are your words. They are authoritative and truth and perfect, Lord, sufficient for our lives. And we trust, God, that your Spirit also uh, would use what is preached to accomplish powerfully in our lives all that you would have it to do. We pray, God, that you would bless our time this evening. Again, Lord, we humbly come before you, dependent, asking that you would instruct us and cause us to grow in you. Father, we want to be stamped into the image of your Son. And so, Father, I pray that You would use this time to further grow us and build us up in him and that this church would be strengthened also as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in uh, seminary, I had a chance to live in the Glendale area. Is anyone from Glendale? It's kind of far, I think, right? Okay, a few. Uh, Yeah, I remember we, we had food together at your home. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we lived in a house that was nicknamed the Pueblo, and it was a little, you know, stucco home, and uh, uh, it was where I stayed for the majority of my seminary time, and the thing that I probably missed more than anything, other than the people, the people are always kind of a given, right? You got to throw that out, uh, but just past the people, uh, in the backyard, there was a glorious orange tree. And it was pretty much in season all year, and probably some of the best oranges I've ever had in my life. And uh, one of our roommates, who was also kind of, I guess, our landlord, it's weird calling him that because he's a friend, but uh, every morning, well, almost every morning, he would go out with the orange picker, and uh, no joke, he would hand squeeze a pitcher of orange juice and leave it in the fridge. And I would wake up every morning to a freshly squeezed glass Uh, of orange juice. I was thinking about this uh, earlier today, and I don't think I ever was actually explicitly told that I could drink the juice. (laughs) So what I'd taken to be a blessing every morning in an act of service, uh, he might just actually think I'm just a jerk (laughs) drinking his juice. But it was a really, really great treat. And as I think about that tree, If you were to go to that house and look at that tree, you'd be thoroughly convinced that it is an orange tree, because when you look at that tree, what does it produce? Oranges. It makes a lot of sense, right? Am I blowing your mind yet? Right? Oranges uh, come from orange trees. Kids, are you following? Okay? Oranges come from orange trees. Now, if you came over to the Pueblo, and I took you to the backyard... And with all the sincerity I could muster, I tried to convince you that that's an apple tree. What would you think of me? 
Like if you're looking at that tree and all it does is produce oranges, some of the best oranges on the planet, and I am there adamantly telling you that that is an apple tree, you would think I'm either blind or crazy, right? And so the way it goes. But imagine then, for whatever reason, the season of oranges comes to an end. Every last orange falls off that tree, and the next season comes around, and lo and behold, all of a sudden, in an inexplicable way, apples start growing on that tree. You would be forced to conclude that that tree is no longer an orange tree. Regardless of what it had once been, you would be forced to admit that that now is what? An apple tree. Because when you look at that tree, even though it used to produce some of the greatest oranges on the planet, in a way that maybe we can not explain or understand, it is now producing apples. And year after year, season after season, all you see on that tree are apples. Well, I might reason with you and argue with you that as long as that tree had been in existence, it had always been an orange tree. And even though you see apples on that tree, I am still thoroughly convinced that that is an orange tree. And as I'm ranting and raving about how that thing is an orange tree, all you're doing is staring at all the beautiful apples that are growing on that tree and wondering why I won't just admit the fact that what had once been an orange tree is now an apple tree. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) I mentioned this because we're talking about roots and we're talking about fruits. And having walked through this morning the connection between bad roots and bad fruits, the Apostle Paul now transitions in this section in verses 20 to 24 to present the opposite picture. That good roots produce good fruits. In verses 17 through 19, we saw that the, uh, our, our hearts were darkened, our sinful minds produced sinful behavior, sensuality, and the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But now in verses 20 to 24, the Word of God teaches us that what we need is the light of God's truth in Christ to change us and to make us new. That once what we once were, we no longer are. We are completely different now. We are not the tree that we once were. And the evidence of that fact is that when you look at us now, we are producing a completely different fruit. And the same goes to say that if I wanted to tell you that I am now an apple tree, And I'm adamant about the fact that you need to treat me like I am an apple tree. But you look at me and all you see are oranges. As much as I am adamant, ranting and raving that I am an apple tree, if all my life is producing is oranges, then what conclusion ought you come to? I must still be an orange tree. I shared my testimony, uh, was it yes, last night? Yeah, seems like so forever ago. <laughs> oh, how the sun ages us. Uh, but my whole life, I was thoroughly convinced that I was an apple tree, doing what apple trees do. As I considered my own testimony that sophomore year of college, I remember just thinking, was it, was it really for Christ? I mean, I could think of pockets of time where, man, it seemed like so sincerely I wanted to live for the Lord and for his glory. But really, when I look back on my life, as I look back on my life now, I kind of laugh that I ever really thought I was an apple tree at all. I mean, when I was with other Christians, I acted as Christian as you possibly could. Like I said, I learned guitar just so I could help lead the music time. I was speaking at my high school's Christian club, I was actually told by all of my peers that I was the most likely to become a pastor. And they were right. I was a Christian club officer. I helped lead three Bible studies, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursday nights. 
I remember going down the beach, bonfire to bonfire, sharing about Jesus Christ uh, with people, just randomly running into people and telling them about Jesus. And what was crazy to me is that when I was not around Christians, there was nothing Christian about me. There was no desire to live for the Lord. In fact, when I was in the locker room with all the other guys, I told them all the same jokes. I laughed at all the same humor. I enjoyed all the other things that they, they did. I, I didn't get into trouble, right? Sometimes you hear those testimonies, you know, I was drinking and doing drugs and all that stuff. I, I wasn't doing those things, not because I feared God, but because I feared dad. And my dad would kill me. But I'll tell you, I wanted those things. I wanted those things so badly, I would go to the parties and then watch all my friends do all the crazy stuff. And I wanted to join in, but I didn't want to get in trouble. And if I was really honest in my own heart, I would have told you, I kind of resent Jesus. I kind of resent God. Because he stands in the way of what my heart really desires. As I think back on my life, even though, yeah, maybe I had oranges that I painted to look like apples, really the fruit that was being produced in my life was evidence enough of who I really was. The Apostle Paul helps us to understand by the Spirit of God that when you become a Christian, everything is different. If you want to be called a Christian, then Great. Understand the gospel. Understand what truly saves you. But also understand that being a Christian means everything is different. And I'm speaking to the choir, but I'm just perchance talking to the one person in here that really needs to hear this. Because I really needed to hear this. And I grew up in the church, and I grew up in a Christian home, and I did all the Christian things, and I served in all the Christian ministries. And I really needed to hear this. When I wake up in the morning, who am I thinking about? What am I living for? Is it the Lord Jesus or is it anything else? Because when you truly understand the gospel, that question makes sense. See, I used to think, like so many people, that being a Christian just means you go to God and you say, I need you, and you have this whole ledger full of just red, full of sins that needs to be wiped out. And Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and that whole thing is wiped out and we're good. And I tell people all the time, if that's all Jesus did, if all Jesus did was remove my guilt, if that's all he did, then for all of eternity, I would have reason to give him praise. But as we talked about this morning, our sin goes beyond just the things that we do. It's a condition of our hearts. I needed to be changed. I needed to be transformed. I think about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew you know, 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is talking about the kingdom. And it's a glorious presentation of what the kingdom is like and what its participants and its citizens live like and act like. But the thing that strikes me is, if I'm sitting here thinking, Lord, I want to enter into your kingdom. And people would come to Jesus from time to time and ask him, what must I do to enter into your kingdom? And Jesus' answer is not quite what we might expect. Because Jesus says there is a cost of admission. And here's the cost of admission. You need to be perfect just as God in heaven is perfect. If you want to enter into the kingdom, if you want to enjoy all of these benefits, if you want to know what it is to be a kingdom citizen, there's a price of admission, and that price of admission is not that you just be good enough, not that you just try hard enough. You need to be perfect, just as God in heaven is perfect. I remember sharing this with, I I used to be a tutor for SAT. Well, if you know me, that's laughable because I don't math. But I remember sharing this with my student, and he looked at me and said, if that's true, that's terrifying. And I said, you're exactly right. That's exactly the response that that is supposed to elicit. Who can measure up to that? On my best day, I mean, get this. 
on your best day, when you woke up in the morning and you read your Bible and you spent time in prayer, on your best day, when you were telling your friends about Jesus and you were obeying your parents and doing everything that you were supposed to do, on your best day, you still deserved hell. We don't measure up to the righteousness of God. I certainly can't attain to his sinless perfection in all of my thoughts, in all of my actions, in all of my speech. Look, I can play the game and I can put up a good front. I'm a pretty good actor when it comes to those things. I proved that for decades of my life. But God knows my heart. And if that's the cost of admission then where is my hope? If the cost of admission is that I need to have righteous perfection, as God is righteous in perfection, that I need to be holy as He is holy, then I can't attain to that. I need someone to accomplish that for me. I need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. I'm not perfect, but he certainly is. And he lived that perfect life, demonstrating that righteous perfection, and at the end of it, went to the cross and died on the cross for everyone who would trust in him. And you know how it goes. The Bible tells us that when Jesus went to the cross, an exchange took place, right? There was a substitution that took place because he was our representative, because he stood in our place on the cross. He bore our punishment, our penalty. He bore our guilt and our shame. He died the death that I was supposed to die. He stood in my place because he loved me. And all of my guilt and all of my sin, he took upon himself. And in exchange, his righteous perfection is credited to me. Because I tried really hard, because I live my best life now. No, simply, this word of God tells me Because I placed my faith in him. Because I trusted in his promise. Because God was good to save me. An exchange took place. My sin for his righteous perfection. I couldn't pay the price of admission, and so he paid it in my stead. I needed him. And in so doing, he changed me. Ezekiel talks about, Ezekiel 36 talks about this in the promise of the new covenant. And God says that I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to give you a new heart. That heart of stone I'm going to remove from you. A heart of stone is dead. It doesn't beat. It's just a rock. And I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh that beats and gives life. What I needed was a heart transplant because my heart to my innermost being in the core of who I was, I was a sinner against God. I needed that core removed and replaced. I didn't just need a simple, you know, adjustment to the way that I was living. I needed a complete overhaul. God changed me, everything about me from the inside out so that now I have all new desires. A completely new direction, new goals, new hopes, new new aspirations. Everything is different now that I'm in Christ. The Patrick that was born into this world in 1977 died and was buried together with Christ. But by the grace of God, I now live by faith in the one who died for me and rose again on my behalf. Everything is different now. Everything is filtered through who I am in Christ. And every day now is lived for His glory and not my own. His desires and not my own. And as a very wise pastor once said, 
to live in that way is not some upper tier, upper echelon, advanced placement kind of Christianity. To live in that way is everyday, ordinary, mundane, day one Christianity. We share this in our membership class because we want to make sure that you understand what it means to be a Christian. And, and maybe I'm standing up here sharing this and you're thinking, are we going to go back to Ephesians 4? <laughs> right? I know all this. And if that's you, praise God. But if you're sitting there and I'm talking about what it means to be a Christian and the change and the transformation that takes place in your life and the fruit that results from that transformation, and you're sitting there and you're wondering to yourself, why does this not sound like me at all? then I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad we get to open up God's word together and walk through this passage together because it's really, really helpful for us. Because what we need is conversion. The very language of our Christianity, right? The fact that we've been born again, the fact that we've been converted to Christianity, these terms denote change. I'm not what I once was. I'm different now by the grace of God. He saved me and he transformed me. And so in verses 20 to 24, we're going to see two explanations of biblical conversion. Two explanations of biblical conversion. And we see the first in verses 20 and 21. Two explanations of biblical conversion. And the first is this, that the root is your knowledge of Jesus. Verses 20 and 21, that the root is your knowledge of Jesus. Listen to the words, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. The root is your knowledge of Jesus. You see, verse 19 presents the immoral lives of those whose hearts are darkened by sin, that they are greedy for impurity, and given over to sensuality or licentiousness. And verse 20, in that transition, when he says, but, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, but that's not how you are supposed to act. Notice he doesn't say that. He doesn't immediately shift from that bad behavior to our good behavior. The contrast between their behavior and our lives, the contrast is in how we have learned Christ. They live this way in their depravity, in their immorality, but you did not learn Christ in this way. And that you is emphatic contrasting with the they that comes in verse 19. Look, this is an unusual verse. As far as we know, nowhere else in the Bible and nowhere else in other extra-biblical literature in the Greek do we ever hear about learning a person. This is the only place. You did not learn Christ this way. But as believers in Christ, we certainly know the intent, right? Because being a Christian involves more than just knowing some facts about who Jesus is. Being a Christian involves more than just understanding a bulleted you know, pro- process of what it means to be a Christian. It's more than just a PowerPoint presentation You know, God, sin, Jesus, response. We understand that being a Christian means that I know him. I know him. It's not just that I know about him. I know him. We need those facts. We need to know about him. But it's so much more than that. Do you know Jesus? It's like I said this morning. Is he your Lord and Savior? It's not enough that he is the savior of your parents. 
It's not enough that you have their testimonies to hang on to. I had a professor in seminary who grew up as a missionary kid. He had some remarkable stories of God's provision. I mean, the kinds of stories that you only read in like the biographies of old, right? Where they sit down as a family to their dinner table and there's no food in the cupboards and there's no food on the table and yet dad prays and thanks God for the food. And as soon as he says amen, knock, 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 right? One of the church members comes to the door and says, hey, I got some extra groceries for you. Would you, would you like this? And just remarkable stories. And he talked about how the day that he got married, his dad pulled him aside and reminded him of all the ways that God had shown him kindness. And his dad left an open door and said, listen, if ever you are in need, you and your family, you're always welcome over to dine at our table. I remember him telling us, while he appreciated the thought, appreciated the love of his father, he determined that day never Never to take him up on that offer. The reason being, if our God is so good to care for and to provide for my father, I can trust that he is good and will care for and provide for my family as well. Is he your God? Does he answer your prayers? Do you walk with him? Do you talk with him? Do you know him? Because that's the wonderful offer of the gospel. That you can know him. That you can come into a relationship with him. There's none greater. Like I said, you're either team Jesus or you're team loser. Right? Like I've been chosen for team winner. Team Jesus. I'm on his team. But not just on his team. I am intimately acquainted with my captain. He is my God and my Savior. And the relationship works both ways. Not only do I get to know Him, but for reasons beyond my understanding, He wants to know me. And don't get me wrong, I mean, He knows everything about me. He knows how many hairs are on my head. He knew how many were there yesterday. And how many fewer there are today? He knows every fact about me. In fact, he knows me far better than I know myself. But he wants to also know me in relationship. I love that. I love that I can know him beyond a factual knowledge to come into relationship with him. And so I ask again, when, when the Bible says that you did not learn Christ this way, Do you know him? The Ephesians did. And that's why he says in verse 21, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That if indeed could also be kind of understood like assuming. He's trying to help them understand, I know you know him. I know that you trust in him. I know your testimony. I know that this is your experience. You have heard him, and you have been taught in him. Because when it comes to all the problems of the world, it just, I don't know if you ever paid attention to this, but just watch the news, or watch like the daytime shows, or or whatever. And whenever they talk about all the problems in the world, and, and, and all the, you know, whatever, if it's a school shooter, or if it's, Whatever it is, you fill in the blank with whatever problem is happening in the world. The world solution, every time, is what we need is more education. The assumption is, they just didn't know any better. If they just had more information, if they just had a greater education, if they had, you know, just a little bit more intelligence, they wouldn't have done what they did. So it's always education reform. It's always teach it in the schools because that's their way of affecting us and and helping us to be better people. In a way, they're kind of on the right track, except they don't understand that what we need is biblical instruction. What we need desperately is God's truth. We need to be instructed in the truth. 
I think about Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13, where it says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The assumption here is that if someone is going to become a Christian, if someone is going to understand what it means to be forgiven of their sins and have this new life in Christ, then they must hear the gospel. And the Ephesians heard. And they were taught in him. There's a relationship between Ephesians and Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 2, he says something similar in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. You see, the Apostle Paul helped them to understand that what they needed was Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But what they also needed was Jesus Christ, that they might walk in his ways and be obedient to his commands, that they would walk as God's children. The truth is in him. Right? Jesus testified to that. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The truth is in Jesus. And he is not only the one who helps us to understand that he is truth, but he then leads us in that truth as well. I love what 1 John 5 says in verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Do you get that? We need the understanding of him, and he's the one who gives us that understanding. We need the truth, and he's the one who brings us to that truth so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ this is the true God and eternal life because knowing Jesus opens up the truth it opens up the truth I'm going to make the same mistake I did with our college group right? there was a, a movie way back in, in, in the day called The Matrix <laughs> I shared this at our college group and they're like huh? You know, what's the matrix? And, and you know, the blue pill and the red pill. I forgot which one does what. But you take one and your eyes are opened to the truth. Except that truth was just dismal. That truth was depressing. That the real world is just falling apart. You're not going to watch If you haven't watched it by now, you're not going to watch it. But when we understand the truth as it is in Jesus, everything It's like the light turns on for everything. It's not even just that I get to know him, but I get to know myself. I learn about me. I learn about the world around me. I learn about what's wrong with this world and what the only hope and solution is for this world. I learn that this world is not all that there is. That there's a glorious inheritance that I look forward to so that whatever I might suffer in this life, it pales in comparison to the glory that will be revealed. That I can make choices. I can take risks of faith, knowing that if I suffer consequences, this life is not the end. And so I can risk that relationship and tell that person about Jesus. I can risk my reputation and tell them about their need for Christ. Because even if they hate me for the rest of my days, and even though they cause my life to be just absolutely awful. I know there's glory to come. Man, there's truth in Jesus. And it's like my eyes are open for the first time, and I realize how in utter darkness I used to live, and now the lights have been turned on. But it's not because I'm so intelligent. It's not because I figured it out. Or I'm better than the next guy. I was just in my darkness. And by the way, content in my darkness. And he shined the light of his truth in my heart. Verse 21 is unique. I talked about how verse 20 is unique. But verse 21 is unique as well. It's kind of a fun little exercise if you ever read through the New Testament. I always tell people, like, 
If you read through the Bible, it's, it's always good to read through the Bible, but it's also really good to read through the Bible with a theme in mind. You know, like read through the Bible and note all the mentions of the kingdom. Or read through the Bible and note all the mentions of the Holy Spirit. And as you read through it year after year, just focus on another theme. But one kind of fun exercise is read through the New Testament outside of the Gospels and try to find how many instances of the name Jesus you can find without a title. Where he's not Jesus Christ or he's not the Lord Jesus, or something, where he's just Jesus. This is one of the few instances in the New Testament where that's true. But Jesus is central to the gospel. And it may be that in not referring to him by title, that the Apostle Paul is really just helping us focus back on his earthly ministry and what he came to do that he became like us and walked like us and talked like us and was in every way like us and yet without sin. That he came to die and he went to the cross and he died for our sins and he rose again to give us hope. Because that's what we need to know. We need to know the truth about who he is, that Jesus is central to the gospel, that it's about knowing him, hearing him, being taught in him, growing in him. It's all about Christ. It's, I can't believe I'm giving this up, but I'm going to give it up. Sorry if this undermines your ministry in some way. But regardless of the counseling situation, I'm thoroughly convinced what people need is Jesus. I don't know how many times I talk to my elders and they're talking about all these counseling cases. And yeah, it's more nuanced than that. But I can't recount how many times I've told them, look, point them to Christ. Point them to Christ. What they don't need is for you to wax eloquently about their situation or your own wisdom or your own advice about what they need to do. Point them to Jesus. They need Jesus. They've lost sight of Jesus and they're drowning. They need Jesus. Far more than they need you. Because it's all about Him. That's the root of our faith. It seems so simple, but it's true. Are your eyes on Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Because the second point, if you understand the first explanation of biblical conversion, that the root is your knowledge of Jesus, verses 20 and 21, then you'll understand that the fruit, then, is your transformation of life. The root is your knowledge of Jesus, and the fruit is your transformation of life. And you see this in verses 22 to 24. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The truth is in Jesus. But what truth specifically is the Apostle Paul referring to? And in verses 22 to 24, he explains that truth by using three infinitives. To lay aside or to put off the old man, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man. He explains this truth by these three infinitives. This is the truth specifically that I'm referring to. That one, you lay aside or put off the old man. Two, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And three, that you put on the new man. When I was in high school, I was uh, part of a singing group, a chamber choir. And... uh, I'm not going to brag. It was the elite singing group of the school. And, yeah. We went on tour, and I guess my, my teacher uh, was going to retire soon. I think he knew it. And he, I don't know, he just really liked our class. So he planned this whole like California tour where we were going to go from city to city and sing in all these different venues. And I think he lined up something like 12 concerts for us to sing. At least that's what he told the school. 
I think we had three concerts that entire tour. And he just wanted to go on a trip with us and hang out with us. So we, like, we went to like Sacramento, and we didn't sing anywhere. We just saw the city. And we went to San Francisco. We didn't have a concert, so we just went to the pier. It was a 39. And we just sat on the pier. We just sang, and people gave us money. <laughs> but when we were in Santa Barbara, we didn't have a concert there either. When we were in Santa Barbara, uh, we pulled into this one hotel. And uh, I don't know if it's still there. That was a long time ago. But it was across from a cow field. I didn't know it was a cow field. The barbed wire should have given it away. But me and our th- my th- the three guys that were in my room, uh, we weren't tired. And it was night, and we looked out, and there, across the way there was this giant rock, like this huge rock. And the moonlight was coming through the clouds and hitting that rock perfectly. And we thought to ourselves, how awesome would it be to climb that rock and sit there and just talk all night? And so we tried it. We crossed the street, we climbed through the barbed wire fence, and we started making our way to that rock, realizing just then, this thing is a lot farther than we thought it was. And when we got about halfway to the rock, I looked to my right, and there were about 60 cows. And they were all like staring at us. I was like, we just ignore them, just ignore them. We kept walking, kept walking, kept walking. And no joke, all the cows started walking along with us. And as we were approaching the rock, I kid you not, they made a line at the base of the rock facing us and then started marching towards us. All of them. At this point, we're freaked out. We are halfway from the fence to the rock. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way we're going to make it back before we get trampled. But I look to my left, and there's another fence that's a, a little bit closer. So we just made a mad sprint for that fence. We just, to- like, just took off running. And all the cows started running with us. And then my friend turned his ankle and fell. And I thought, leave him! <laughs> no, no, we all stopped. We all stopped. And no joke, as soon as we stopped... All the cows stopped. It was like they were waiting for us to catch a breather. And so he was nursing his ankle, nursing his ankle. And then we finally asked, are you okay? Can you go? He's like, yeah. And we started limping to the fence. And all the cows started walking along with us. We finally got to the barbed wire fence. We climbed through. It was just bushes behind us. We were pressed up against the bushes. And all the cows came up to the fence and started nudging it, nudging it. And then we saw this huge thing. It was one bull that kind of just knows its way through the crowd and we were like just like face to face with this enormous bull nudging the fence nudging the fence and I'm like guys we need to get through this bush and so we are climbing through the like getting scratched up by all the branches there's really no access we're just making a tunnel as we're getting through this bush and we make it to the other side and we think to ourselves this is going to be a story to tell our kids one day Well, now we're on a completely different side of the field, and so we have to walk across, turn the corner, come back to our hotel. When we got to the corner, we, you know, we noticed that the the fence kind of cut in, so rather than taking the road and going the long way, we took the shortcut. We walked through uh, the, the, the shortcut, not knowing that it was this giant mud pool. And before we knew it, we were like knee deep, thigh deep in mud. Climbing through this thing, getting through the corner, we get back to the parking lot, and I'm just like, guys, we can't go back to our rooms like this. At this point, it's probably two in the morning. No one's awake. So we all stripped down in the parking lot, took off our, 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 our muddy jeans, and then realized that there were leeches all over our legs. <laughs> and so we carefully just took leech after leech off of our bodies. There's a point to this. I know there's a point to this. That's right. We got back to the hotel. And I just remember thinking, I want nothing more than to get out of these dirty clothes. And this is the language that the Apostle Paul uses here. When he's talking about laying aside or putting off the old man, the verb there is used to talk about removing clothes, filthy clothes. Knowing Jesus means that this old man, this old self, 
has been laid aside. That once we, what we once were has been shed off. It's referring to our old nature that was corrupted in Adam. I, I like the way the Apostle Paul explains this in Romans chapter 6. If you want to flip back there, Romans chapter 6, he uses different imagery but brings the point across just the same. Romans 6, starting in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this, that the old self was crucified with him. The old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ Having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he, that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so not to mix metaphors or to confuse the two passages, but when I think about the old man, I think about these clothes that need to be shed off, it's more than just muddy jeans with leeches. It's clothes that have the stink of death on them. And now that I'm in Christ, I understand that that's been shed off. It's been removed from me. That life that was once corrupted by the lusts of deceit is now removed in Christ. Through the removal of our renewal of our minds. That's the second infinitive. To be renewed in your minds. We talked about this this morning, about how that's the problem. Our hearts, our minds, our innermost being is corrupted by sin. I'm reminded of a, a proverb that maybe some of you know, Proverbs 23, verse 7, which says this, as a person thinks within himself, so he is. You might have heard the adage that you are what you eat. The Bible says, no, you aren't what you eat. That's weird, right? You are what you think. As a person thinks within himself, so he is. It's not what, that you are what you eat. It is that you are what you think. But what Proverbs 23 is not saying is that if you just think really good thoughts about yourself, if you just have this positive image about yourself, then you'll be a really good person. That's not what it's saying. The purpose of that proverb is to communicate to us that regardless of what is going on on the outside, what that person considers of himself inside is what he truly is. In other words, don't be fooled by an external appearance. It's the heart that will truly expose what a person is. And without the grace of Christ, each one of us in our hearts has the stink of death. What we need is a renewal in our minds. Right? Doesn't Romans 12, 2 talk about that? That we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That, that, that something needs to be done to us. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. God, I need to be changed. I need to be transformed Yes, I need to be washed. But I need to be changed. I need to be transformed. And then I'll understand what it means to put on the new man. Or maybe better yet, to have put on the new man. Because we're talking about a spiritual reality. And yes, there's behavior that follows that. But we understand that I'm not the one that shed the clothes off. I'm not the one that renewed my mind. I'm not the one that put the new clothes on. These are all things that have happened to me. The Apostle Paul is talking about a reality in my life now that I'm in Christ. I have shut off the old man. I have been renewed in my mind. I have put on the new man. And so why would I go back to the practices of the old man if I'm new now in Christ? 
If I am now an apple tree, why in the world would I want to go back and try and bear oranges? It goes against who I am now in Christ. When we got back to the hotel room, all the guys took a shower and uh, collapsed and went to bed and left it to me. I actually took it upon myself. It wasn't like it was like drew straws or anything. I just volunteered. But I took the little bar of hotel soap and I washed everyone's jeans and their shoes and uh, put them all up on the uh, air conditioning unit and just let them dry. And no joke, next morning I was shocked at how good a job I did. We actually wore the same jeans out. They were so clean. They smelled good. They looked good. The shoes were good. The air conditioner broke. But, <laughs> but everything else was, was wonderful. It isn't, the imagery here isn't just that he takes them off, gives them a little rinse and puts them back on. It's completely new. I am a new man now. The Apostle Paul used this idea back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, to talk about the reality corporately. When he talked about how Jews and Gentiles have been brought together as one in Christ. And he says that he has then made us to be one new man. We are not what we once were. The differences between Jews and Gentiles. It's not that the Gentiles have joined this Jewish organization. It's not that the Jews are now being brought into a Gentile organization. Christ has created a completely new man. And corporately speaking, has made us one. Well, here he's talking about individually. This idea that we are new now. That everything is different. Again, the language of Christianity speaks to this truth. It's John chapter 3, that I've been born again. Or born from above, if you enjoy that, right? That I'm different now. And Nicodemus understood. I can't go back into my mother's womb. How are these things possible? But the meaning was clear. Unless I receive a new life, I have no hope. I need to be born again. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17 that in Christ I am a new creation. That the old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Everything is different now. And the passage here literally says that this is according to God. According to God. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceits, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which literally, according to God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And that idea of being according to God means that there is a similarity. That just as God is righteous, I now walk in righteousness. Just as God is holy, I now walk in holiness. He comes back to this idea very subtly in chapter 5, verse 1. If you just flip forward to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, listen to the words there. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Some of you have been meeting our family, and it's been interesting listening to the comments about the resemblances between our children and us. I see me and my daughter all the time, and if you tell me that Eden and I look the same, I'll tell you, yeah, it's just me with long hair, you know, uh, and better looking. But, but I don't see me and the other two at all. So if you do, explain it to me. I don't see me and Ezra or Emma at all. I see mom. I see a lot of mom, uh, but I don't see me. But beyond that, it's kind of interesting, like, the things that they take on, personality quirks, things that I say. And it's true for me and my dad as well. I hear myself quoting my dad all the time, broken English and all. And it's just interesting, right? 
Because when someone is your dad, then what you would expect to see is a resemblance. And the Apostle Paul says that we ought to be imitators of God as beloved children. If he is my father, I should expect to see a family resemblance. And he's righteous. And he is holy. And as he is righteous, and as he is holy, if I am his child, would you not expect to see me also walking in righteousness and holiness in the truth? That's the idea here. We've been created for this. Been given new life for this. It isn't just about making a few adjustments. It is a complete overhaul. Some people read a passage like this and get the wrong idea. Remember Emperor's New Groove? One of the greatest characters in all of film, Krunk. My brothers. I mean, Kronk is one of the few characters that could come up with his own theme music and do it well. But, you know, remember the scene, he would have the angel pop up and the devil pop up, and they'd have this whole, you know, contest to try and persuade him one way or another. And when we read a passage like this, sometimes we're tempted to think of it that way. That all of a sudden, as I'm coming to a crossroads, the old man pops up and the new man pops up and don't listen to that guy, he's a loser. You know, and They're just kind of talking to each other as if there's this wrestling that takes place with the old man and the new man still kind of battling it out in my heart. Folks, the old man is dead. The old man has been crucified with Christ. It is Galatians 2.20. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The old man is dead, but if we are to live consistently within that reality, having been renewed, we continue to experience an ongoing renewal. Having put that old man to death, we continue living in light of that reality. Having put on the new man, we continue to live within that reality that I am not what I once was. That's Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Am I to continue in sin that God's grace might increase? God forbid. How can I, if I've died to sin, continue to live in it? If I've died to it, how can I continue to live in it? The argument from Scripture is not the old man and the new man are battling it out and so... You better listen to the new man. The presentation in Scripture is that the old man is dead and gone. So why are you trying to bring him back to life? Live consistently within that reality because that is who I am now in Christ. I don't just keep on sinning that God's grace might be increased in my life. I can't keep on sinning. I've died to that sin. It's not who I I am anymore. I'm an apple tree. And when you look at my branches, what you ought to expect to see are apples. Because even though for years and years and years, I was an orange tree, in a way that we may not fully ever understand, Oranges stopped being produced on my branches. And the season came when apples started to be produced. It seems so simple, but that's the truth. And as you consider your own life, as you consider your day-to-day decisions and what you're living for, is Christ not just part of the equation, Is Christ your aim? Is he your goal? Is he your everything, your all in all? 
That's what it means to be a Christian. Good roots produce good fruits. And if you're not a Christian, this is what it's about. It's not just knowing some facts about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. Knowing what he came and did for you. Knowing what he's done for me. And knowing that if I truly know him, if I know the forgiveness of sins, then I'm not what I once was. That heart of stone has been removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. What was once dead and cold is now life-giving. Do you know Jesus? Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for this time. Lord, your word is so good. And we thank you, God, for how you revealed it to us. Lord, it's just so exciting to be here with IBC, to worship together with these saints and to open up your word together with them. And I pray, God, it would be a help. Lord, give us a receptivity. Help us, Lord, to be clay in your hands that your spirit would mold us, make us into what you want us to be. Be glorified, Lord, in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.